Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to Thee, O Lord, through Jesus Christ our Saviour. Amen. For the third time now, and just prior to his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus speaks to his disciples specifically about his pending betrayal, his suffering, his death and his resurrection. This time, however, the, the prediction is more detailed. Jesus' death will be an official execution. He'll be handed over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged. And death by crucifixion is mentioned explicitly for the first time. The rejection of Jesus is total. He's rejected by Jew and Gentile alike. And his humiliation, his pain, his crucifixion, they're altogether inglorious. That he should be raised to life on the third day stands in stark contrast. It's little wonder then that Jesus is telling his disciples for the third time that he'll suffer, die and then be raised to life. But they still don't understand that servanthood is the status of honour, that that suffering is the path to glory, and that perfect sacrifice is the cost of redemption. For in three incidents immediately prior to this account, Jesus teaches his disciples that the values of the kingdom turn worldly values on their head. Where the disciples hindered little children, Jesus welcomed them as those to whom the kingdom of God belongs. And when Peter and the disciples sought reward for following Jesus, well, he didn't deny reward, but he linked it to servanthood and humility. As Jesus puts it, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. It's not what they were expecting. It flies contrary to all human notions of what greatness and glory is all about. And in the parable of the workers in the vineyard, Jesus teaches the same thing. They're the last, they're treated as if they're first, and the first as if they're last. There's just no connection between merit and reward. No amount of work, not status, no amount of money, can make us deserving of what God only offers as a gift. Reward comes down to divine sovereignty and mercy alone. I remember once talking to a man about this, not in this parish, in another one. He listened carefully to what I said and then he asked me, would Adolf Hitler, could he have been forgiven if in repentance and faith he trusted Jesus for salvation before he died? Well, I assured him that he could. And the man's response was to say that he just couldn't accept the gospel if it meant that someone so obviously undeserving could be shown mercy, grace and forgiveness. The reversal of values in the kingdom of God was more than he could accept. He still thought that he could be good enough to earn entry into heaven. He still thought that something less than 100%, but better than average, would put God in his debt. He was still comparing himself with the worst of humanity and concluding that he was pretty darn good by comparison. And that's the thing about comparisons. If we think we're better than another, 
it'll make us proud. And if we think we're less than another, it'll make us despair. And only the gospel saves us from both. For the gospel gives us no reason for pride. It condemns us all outright as guilty. And only the gospel rescues us from despair. Because the gospel assures us that we're not only forgiven, but we're also loved and redeemed as the children of God through faith in Christ Jesus the Lord. So we have absolutely no reason for pride and no reason for despair. But at this stage, the disciples, well, they're nowhere near understanding that. They're still responding to Jesus' talk of suffering, death and resurrection with aspirations for greatness. So, for example, James and John, with embarrassing representation from their mum, come to see Jesus and seek his favour. Now, he's already told them that when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, that they too will sit on two of the twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. Now, I'm sure that they must have thought that that was pretty cool. But that's the sort of Messiah that they were looking for. That's why they came to Jerusalem. That, that's what authority and glory looks like, doesn't it? Well, the answer is yes. But the road to glory is by being a servant. It's the first becoming the last. It's the path of suffering and even death. What else could take up your cross and follow Jesus mean? James and John, along with their mother, have totally misunderstood what it means to be first in God's kingdom. So Jesus says to them in verse 22, he says, you don't know what you're asking, that there's a cup to be drunk here. And even though it's not articulated explicitly, this is a cup of suffering. It's what the Old Testament calls the cup of God's wrath. It's the same cup of sorrow and death that Jesus faced as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And now, James and John think that they can drink that same cup. And though that sounds a little naive, I do not think that they're being glib. They follow Jesus thus far, and after Jesus' death and resurrection, we know that they continue to follow him. And as a result, King Herod has James put to death by the sword. And as for John, well, he dies exiled and detained on the Isle of Patmos. So Jesus knows that even if for now, they do not understand the gospel, they eventually they will. For he says to them in verse 23, you will indeed drink from my cup. But what Jesus can't do for them, however, is, is he can't grant them a seat at his right and left hand. But that's the sovereign choice of God his Father, that that's election by grace and not by merit. It's the very thing that James and John just didn't get. Salvation and glory are not for the first, the strong and the powerful, but for the last, the weak and the powerless. Neither furtive requests for favour, nor demonstrations of high office and authority, 
will gain what can only be received by grace. And if we're thinking that James and John have serious issues here that need to be dealt with, it's worth pointing out that the other ten disciples were just as clueless. Their indignation didn't stem from dismay about a lack of humility from the two brothers. They were indignant because they thought that their own positions of authority were being usurped by a pair of sneaks that had got in before them. What Jesus had already taught them about greatness was nowhere evident. No sign of childlike trust and humility here. No hint of any desire to serve. Being the least and the last is not even on the radar. They were still acting like Gentiles. For to be a Jew was to have an understanding of grace that, that the Gentiles could not even begin to know. For to the Jews is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. And all of these things spoke to them of God's sovereign grace. But in this moment, there's no trace of that in the disciples' response. Like the Gentiles who knew nothing of God's grace, they sought to be rulers and high officials who lorded authority over others. But it was never meant to be so with them. Instead, they were to be like Jesus, who didn't come to be served, but to serve. If they wanted to be great, then they needed to be as servants. If they wanted to be first, then they needed to be as slaves. The reversal of the slave and master role was entirely radical. Not just in first century Palestine, but also anywhere else in the ancient world. It's a uniquely Christian concept, and it's entirely counterintuitive. And because it's not our default position, it needs to be constantly reset in our own lives by the Gospel. Daily we need to remind ourselves and one another that we are far more sinful than we think we are, and yet far more loved than we could ever expect to be. And there's just one more thing that I want to bring to your attention. Because so far in this passage, it would be easy and right to conclude that we simply don't measure up. We're not humble, we're proud. We don't naturally seek to serve, but to be served. We don't want to be last, we want to be first. And at our best, we may even look to Jesus as the supreme example of a life well lived. His life is the model of how we might want to live. For there's something attractive about humility. And if all of that was true, and there was nothing more to it, then Jesus would have died a martyr. His life would be an inspiration to many, and he would be held up as an heroic example to emulate. But that's all he'd be. One like Mother Teresa, perhaps Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi. But Jesus is not merely an heroic example for us to aspire to and admire. He's our saviour. His death has significance and meaning 
that far surpasses that of simply being a role model. His death actually achieves something. As he says in verse 28, his life is given as a ransom for many. Jesus' death paid the price for our redemption. His death was substitutionary. He died for us and instead of us. He died the death that we deserved so that we might receive the mercy that we don't deserve. If our understanding of the Gospel doesn't take seriously Christ's substitutionary death for us, then at best we'll only ever hear a Gospel that condemns us in our sinfulness but is never redemptive. And at worst, we'll not hear the Gospel at all because we fail to see the depth of our own sin in the enormity of what it has cost God. For God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Only the substitutionary death of Jesus can deal with the root cause of our problem, and that's sin. For only by his death can our sin be forgiven. Only by his resurrection can we too be raised to eternal life. And eternal life is not an unlimited extension of our present reality. That, that sounds more like hell than heaven. Eternal life, well, it's a new life. It's a new life that begins when we put our trust in Jesus. It, it turns our world upside down and reverses worldly values to become kingdom values. Eternal life means entering into a new reality. It's like moving from the womb that was once so warm and comfortable and into a world where sound is crisp and not muffled and where light makes everything so vivid and clear. Eternal life means discovering that what we once thought was true was actually a lie. If we once thought that reality was limited to what we could see and touch and measure, we discover that reality is far greater than that. This world and the universe is more intricate, more complex, more beautiful, more expansive than even Professor Stephen Hawking could ever imagine. And yet beyond that, revealed to us is a spiritual reality. What's happening in heavenly places is the unbounded worship of the Father in heaven and the Lamb upon the throne. What's happening on earth is the presence of God's Holy Spirit dwelling in we who believe. In life, he guards us and he guides us. In spiritual warfare, he protects us against the flaming darts and schemes of the evil one. And in his eternal purposes, he seals us as God's own. He guarantees for us an inheritance with the saints in heaven. The secular world is easily seduced into believing the lie that reality exists or ceases to exist beyond the physical. But the more seductive and perhaps the more pervasive lie comes not from outside the church but from inside the church. Not from the secular world, but from the religious world. 
If the secular world denies a spiritual reality, then the religious world conflates the physical and the spiritual, as if they operated from the same rules. So, for example, I've often heard it said that someone who has suffered much in this life will go straight to the front of the queue when it comes to entering heaven. And usually St. Peter's given a mention there because he supposedly holds the keys to a locked gate. Why it's locked, I have no idea. I have to tell you that this is problematic on all sorts of levels. Though suffering happens because of sin, there is no cause and effect relationship between our suffering and our sins. Those who suffer most are not the most sinful, and those who suffer least are not the most saintly. Moreover, even if we suffer for the sake of the gospel, even if we devote ourselves to serving God and one another as we ought, our suffering, our service, our humility are in no way redempted. They do not and they cannot atone for our sins. They're woefully insufficient to pay the debt that we owe. In the late 1700s, Augustus' top lady wrote a now familiar hymn called Rock of Ages. And two of the stanzas say this, Not the labours of my hands can fulfil thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my, flea, my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone, thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me saviour, or I die. And top lady is right. No amount of labour, zeal, no amount of tears can ever atone for our sins. Christ must save and him alone. For when we come to Christ, we come foul in our sins, naked in our shame, and helpless in our state. We can't come as lords, but only as servants. We can't come with hands full of our own righteousness. We can't come as the deserving first. We can only come as the undeserving and the last. And when we do, the blood of Christ avails for us. And not only are our sins forgiven and are we set free, but we're raised from death to life. We're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms and we're exalted from last to first, but only in Christ Jesus, only in the rock of ages cleft for us. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus, not only as our brother and our friend, but also as our Saviour and our Lord. Thank you that by his sacrifice of himself, he has exchanged our sins for his righteousness, our shame for his glory. 
He has brought us from death to life and he has created us anew in himself. Help us, our Lord, to live our lives as servants of the gospel, servants of one another, and servants of our Lord Jesus Christ. Confident that we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which you prepared in advance for us to do. Now to you, who are able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to your power that is at work within us, to you be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, through all generations, forever and ever. Amen.